people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Понятно, почему цыгане не идут в геологи. Те же шатры, те же песни, еще деньги платят. Нет, почему? Тебе надо меня разоблачать. Тебе надо доказать. Ну, что доказать? Что не знаю, это? не знаю. Наверное, что я бездельник, что ли. Одна ты живешь так, остальные все не так. Тебе надо, чтобы человек вертелся, как автомат заведенный. Чтобы ему было тошно. Здравствуй, чувство долга. Вот тогда ты его будешь уважать. Сочувствовать, но уважать. Я вовсе не кручусь из чувства долга. Мне это нравится. Ну, конечно, конечно. Одна ты настоящая, остальные же все бумажные. Не надо так. Ну, зачем это мы ссоримся все время? Не надо ссориться. Ну, не надо. Это все потому, что ты у меня тоже начальничек. Да? Да. И ты точно так же... Время от времени думаешь, mm -hmm. да? а на кой мне это все сдалось, да? mm -hmm. и уходишь в лес. Так? Примерно так, да. <laughs> вот, вот это я давно хотела услышать. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Gianna D'Amelio. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Alistair Pitts. Hi, Mike. I was hoping you could shed some light on who's been opening my letters. We are concluding our month of discussions about Soviet cinema with a double feature from Kira Muratova, Brief Encounters from 1967 and The Long Farewell from 1971. Brief Encounters got a very limited release while The Long Farewell was shelved before it was released. Both films finally got their day in the sun as the Cold War began to thaw. In Brief Encounters, two women are in love with the same man. The film has a real new wave feel to it with a fractured timeline and kind of a rough production. We will be spoiling both of these films as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, go out and find them if you can, and watch them. You have been warned. So, Gianna, when was the first time you saw Brief Encounters, and what did you think? The first time I saw Brief Encounters was about four years ago. I thought it was brilliant, and I thought it was bruising. I saw quite a bit of myself in Valya, the character played by the director and screenwriter, Kira Muratova. And it can be a really wonderful, like, validating experience to see yourself on screen, but in a Muratova film, it's also quite a reality check. But it immediately became a favorite film of mine, and it's one that still eludes me, so I keep coming back to it, and it keeps being relevant in lots of different ways. And Ali, how about you? I saw this a couple of years ago when I covered it on my show, Files Unite, and I was impressed by the non-linear structure and I was kind of blown away by the charisma of Vladimir Vysotsky and Nina Ruslanova. It's a very memorable film. I saw this for the podcast. I'd never seen it before. And it's so different than everything else that we've been talking about. I was kind of blown away when we got to this because 
I mean, we've discussed some interesting films this month. I'm still reeling over Welcome or No Trespassing just because it was so goddamn funny. I had such a great time with the action adventure of the Amphibian Man. Last week, my heart was broken with three poplars. And here we are with these two films, which only a few years later and such a different tact. I mean, I mentioned how new wave this film feels to me. It feels very DIY in a lot of ways. And this, you know, I mentioned the Czech new wave a few episodes ago. It kind of reminds me of that. But more than that, it reminds me of the French new wave and especially this fractured timeline. And I can see maybe where people didn't quite get this at the time or had a little bit of trouble getting into it. I know my wife, she was just kind of half watching and she was like, eh, I didn't understand it at all. I'm like, well, actually it's a couple different timelines going on. I started to explain it. She's like, Oh yeah, no, she was, she was half reading, half watching. So she was not getting it, but I really like the way that this film was put together. I think my only complaint is probably Maxim's fake beard. That was really distracting for me. And if it wasn't a fake beard, it sure looked fake. Come on, dude. Do something better. Wow. Harsh words on Vladimir Vysotsky. He's known for being this kind of like scruffy, crude, rebellious, growly, um, dissident singer-songwriter. So by the time he's appearing in Brief Encounters, he's about 29, but he's already like a, a thorn in the side of the cultural authorities. And he sings taboo, sarcastic, sardonic songs about Soviet society and the elements of it that are unofficial, right? They're not allowed on screen. They're not allowed in any kind of media. So like prostitution, drug use, that kind of thing. Life in the army, self-censorship of artists. Um, so if he did, if his beard was fake, that would be like a major scandal. If he's secretly clean cut and like a good communist citizen, that would be, that would be quite a scandal. There's a present story going on with uh, Nadia and Valentina, and then there's the flashbacks with both of these characters with Maxim. One at a time, it is very much how these two women experience this one man, and then these two women are together. Nadia shows up in her best shoes and her suitcase. She's wearing a kerchief over her head, and that kind of identifies her as someone from the countryside. And she shows up very late at night. She rings the doorbell, and our other protagonist, Valia, opens the door. And right away, we know something's horribly wrong, because Nadia, on the doorstep, just has this look of shock and horror on her face when she sees Valentina. And Valentina's, like, a little bit surprised, but, you know, she welcomes Nadia in, and Nadia is just shaken to her core, and we soon figure out why. If we could just talk for a second about, like, the first scene, because the way it opens, I think, is just... It just tells us kind of everything we need to know. It's like this scene of, of real domestic and occupational frustration and boredom, right? We see this woman with short hair, no makeup, strong cheekbones, sitting in this dark kitchen with dishes and pots and pans like broken and piled up everywhere, only just enough room for her to sit. And she has a notepad in front of her and she's tapping her pencil to the oppressive sound of a clock ticking, right? Her life seems stalled. And she's impatient and she stands up and she kind of sighs the film's first words, to wash the dishes or not to wash them. That's the question. Ugh, it's always like that. First one thing, then another. And it's so interesting to me that like both the female-centric films we've covered so far have opened with the heavy sounds of clocks ticking and women facing their chores. You know, it's one characteristic of Soviet cinema at this time to explore the burdens on women's time, paid and unpaid work. Muratova's script, like first one thing, then another, it evokes this um the Simone de Beauvoir quote 
that her stance on housework is that it's like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill. It's it's never done. It's just this endless cyclical toil. She writes, the clean becomes soiled, the soiled is made clean over and over, day after day. The housewife wears herself out marking time. She makes nothing. She simply perpetuates the present. Eating, sleeping, cleaning, the years no longer rise up toward heaven. They lie spread out ahead, gray and identical. And so this kind of cyclical, inert Soviet life that Muratova is introducing us to in the dirty kitchen is immediately reflected in every interaction in the rest of the world. But she immediately goes further than that. She links like this domestic inertia and boredom with occupational inertia and boredom. She's a, she's a city official. She's a representative of the government and she sat at her dirty table trying to write a speech, but she's totally uninspired. So she just repeats the first words, dear comrades, until they stretch out and they become sing-song, and they express only her own exasperation. And within moments, though, we see that her frustration extends even further. It's past the domestic, past the professional, and into the personal realm, because she then has this like loving, bickering conversation with her husband, who is not even there. It's all in her head, and it ends with her sighing that he would expect her to wash the dishes, and she starts singing, I don't care. Within two minutes of the film, like, we have this very full picture of kind of like the rot of tedium that is threatening to consume this high-status woman in Odessa from all directions. This whole thing of her profession is interesting as well. She is in charge of the water for Odessa. I kind of feel like there's an elemental thing going on here with her representing water. Maxim is more a earth. He's a geologist, a wandering geologist. And then I was trying to figure out if uh, the other woman is more air. There are a few times where she, we really see her hair being blown around, but just this idea of these three people, these three elements, not really ever wanting to combine. There's always a block between them being fully together. Being a geologist at the time was kind of a sexy job because it meant that you got to go out outside the city with your, just your band of preferred friends and students or colleagues and kind of really live off the grid. So it was seen as like this kind of wild, you know, it's the late sixties. There's hippie culture in the Soviet Union as well. So it's seen as quite a, quite a romantic kind of nomadic existence. And of course, it's free from, you know, the, the spying of, of the authorities and them constantly checking up on you. And we find out later that Maxime has tried having a desk job, but he just finds the bureaucratic and paper-pushing aspect of it just intolerable. Valentina also doesn't like that, but she is more reluctantly accepting, whereas he just can't stand it. And it's just like, nope, nope. Even to make this relationship about this woman that I care about work, that's too much. I don't care about this relationship that much, seems to be his position. Yeah, and it's telling, right? And this is one reason why the film was so heavily censored, is that, like, yeah, Maxim wants to escape the government more than he loves this woman. Valentina's, she should be an ideal politician, right? She's passionate about improving her city. She knows everyone on the street by name. But from everyone else in the local government, there's only excuses and corruption, and meanwhile, she and her constituents are really tired of waiting. They're wasting away from a lack of movement, a lack of progress. It's 1968. It's Odessa. It's a seaside city. There's no water. There's no plumbing. And there's only plumbing in the houses of high officials, including Valentina. She's really alone in her standards, right? She's not a Soviet heroine mobilizing the masses out of love for the state. She's an individual with conviction. 
And rather than this inspiring others or leading to a promotion, her desire for progress only isolates her in this kind of stagnant, indifferent, corrupt world, um, which of course wouldn't play well with the censors because the mandate for Soviet films was to show an on-screen Soviet world, world that was brighter and more hopeful than real life, full of people pulling together and succeeding, and it was meant to instruct people about how to be good citizens. Right. How dare you show a city where the water doesn't work, you know, that, that's just bad. That's a black eye for the system. Yeah. And it's worth noting that Muratova wrote this after moving to Odessa and splitting up with her husband who left her with a kid. And she noticed that there were these water shortages everywhere. And she wanted to make a film about someone who tackled them, a city official. And then she sort of borrowed this Maxim Nadia subplot from a short story. And then she made the Nadia character much more self-secure, sort of determined, contextual. I think the, the author of the short story said, like, I wrote a man's short story and Muratova made it a woman's plot. But this is based on real, real issues. And that's something coming out of the late 50s when there was a lot more leeway for filmmakers to show real life, as in Italian neorealism and, and the French New Wave. There was a lot of excitement about showing street scenes and showing how people were actually living and what they really cared about and what struggles they were really going through. And dissident filmmakers in the late 60s, like Muratova, they took that impulse and they kept it and they held on to it and they made it experimental and they made it their own. Even in the late 60s, when the government is really tightening censorship, it's really shutting down any kind of dissident thinking. Another aspect of Valentina's frustration to jump back a little bit in the conversation is that the reason she's doing the speech that is causing her so much concern and angst is because two men have begged off in different ways. And she even says to her boss over the phone, like, so-and-so knows this field way more than I do. Why can't he do it? And and he's making excuses for it. So it's like she's not even able to concentrate on the part of her job that's actually helping people. She's just doing the the kind of like the performative ideological like talking to the party talking to itself bit uh, so that's where some of her frustration is coming in but i like that she has a sense of humor about it even though it's the sense of humor of exasperation like going back to that to wash or not to wash uh, the dishes because that it, it's literally she's making a pun on on Hamlet, because in in Russian, to be or not to be is buit ilini buit, and uh, to wash is or not to wash would be muit ilini muit. So there's like a there's a humane and playful side to her, even even though she's a frustrated bureaucrat. She's a human frustrated bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah, and it's so it's so great to know that this is coming from Kira Muratova, who wasn't meant to play this character. The actress that she'd hired ended up not working out, so she stepped in because there was no money to hire a replacement. And you just know that that wry sense of humor carried Muratova through all of her interactions with the Soviet government and the Ministry of Cinema as she's like fighting against their changes and making concessions and having to make more concessions and refusing to make concessions. That was a real tool that would have saved her. When you talked about how the short story was taken from a, you know, a man's story to a woman's story, and it's great that not only is Muratova our lead actress in the here, but 
also the director and also giving the female characters much more of the lion's share when it comes to the female gaze and actually being in control of the narrative and making Maxim not the center of the story. Because you could see where he could be, you know, the romantic lead type of thing. Here he is with these two women and who's he going to choose or is he just going to go off on his own and be this wandering geologist kind of thing. But that it becomes the story of these two women and how they interact and how they interacted with Maxim. I really like that she gives them the privilege of the gaze. In the first flashback, it introduces that. The, we have two flashbacks back to back, and they both deal with the way that women look at men in the figure of this one man, Maxim, who's the object of both Nadia's and Valia's gaze. He's the main character in this film, but we only ever see him through their memories, or we hear him in a recording we're really locked inside their perspectives, like you say. Even when we see Nadia, this girl who's just leaving her village, she stops on the way. She's hitchhiking with her friend Luba. She stops on the way because she sees a help-wanted sign in this roadside cafe. And she's like, Luba, you go on to Odessa. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to work here for a bit, make some money. And in the first flashback, we see Nadia's eyes open and Maxim is running down the hill toward the cafe. And we focus entirely on her experience, on her crush, on the risks she takes. She steps out of her comfort zone to come into contact with him and how exhilarating she finds that. And even though she's sort of like, you know, young love, she's like eager to please him. She's like doing all this stuff for him. She's kind of like fixated on him. It never reads as subservient. It always reads ferocious. It reads so passionate and so determined. And she even came all the way to Odessa to find him. And I just really appreciate the way that Muratova shows desire as something powerful, even in the eyes of a 17-year-old, for example. And something active and like initiated from her and not just like passively received she looks at him and is excited by him rather than just, you know, him hitting on her and her being kind of flattered by it. Unfortunately, she's got a guitar, which really, really endears her to him because he's uh, he's kind of a troubadour the way that he goes around. And I mean, it makes sense that the actor is an actual singer and he takes every opportunity to break into song. And I kind of appreciate what he's doing with that. Yeah, you can't have Vysotsky in a film without him singing. And he really goes for it. There's the one song that he sings in the cafe where he is just really laying it out. I mean, it is not a kind of a, a laid back folk song. It is not your, uh, your, your James Taylor type of thing. Yeah, he has the sort of intensity of a Johnny Cash type, but with possibly even more gravel in his voice. I think he might might have even lived harder than than Johnny Cash did. <laughs> Walked harder than Dewey Cox. I think another thing that reminded me of the new wave too is there are a lot of people in the film where I don't know if they're necessarily professional actors. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Loves of a Blonde, where a lot of the side characters are just regular folks. I guess it kind of reminds me of Love, Loves of a Blonde as well. That whole idea of our main character coming all the way to see, you know, her new boyfriend and then her new boyfriend isn't at home and that she spends an evening, a very awkward evening with his parents, as opposed to, you know, with this, how Nadia comes to town and now is spending so much time with the wife. Uh, are they married or is it, they're just together of Maxim and Valentina? 
I'm never sure about this because she does refer to him as her husband. But yeah, it feels like the least like stereotypical like married relationship I've ever seen on screen. We talked about this in the last episode, but this is a time in which many women are breadwinners and many women are suffering the effects of an absent husband or an abusive husband and, and sort of taking on all the responsibilities themselves. And Murato is just one of many filmmakers at the time who are focusing on the kind of triple burden that women are handling and what happens in the absence of a partner. And in Brief Encounters and the Long Farewell, we see teenagers who are also lost and also looking to belong and looking where they fit in and not finding it. And they sort of step into the roles of providing practical and emotional support for these women. And so you see Kurt sort of substitute families form from women and from quote-unquote delinquent teens who were really targeted in the Soviet press at the time. You know, there was a birthing crisis, there were too many divorces, teenagers weren't doing what they were supposed to do, they weren't good young pioneers, they weren't in the Komsomol, they were delinquent, they were listening to American rock music. And the Soviet state blames this all on women, saying women have become too masculinized, that's why men are too passive and they're not doing anything and they're leaving their families. And we were we made a huge mistake back in the 1920s to liberate women and give them equal rights, because now look at them. And Muratova is saying, like, no, look, let's look at these women. Like, let's look at their frustrations. Let's look at what they have to deal with. These two films are great examples of this kind of genre. And, like, Wings is another one by Larissa Shapitko. And there's a great film by Lana Gogobritze. And, yeah, it's a, it's a great kind of subgenre of Soviet cinema at the time. Mike, you keep bringing up um, sort of, like, the neorealism or the, the French New Wave. And it's, it's interesting, too, because Muratova... Her mom was a city official whose job was to sort of screen foreign films for distribution into the Soviet Union. And she would take little Kira Muratova, who wasn't Kira Muratova at the time, I think she was Kira Kurotkova, um, to all these screenings. So Muratova grew up with all of these foreign films in her head. And she went to school, she went to film school at the time when, when Soviet cinema was really embracing neorealism and, and sort of new waves. And so she, she had a whole library of cinema to draw from that many people didn't at the time. And she, she was famous for using people on the street. You know, people would come up to her and see her filming and they'd be like, oh, I want to be in your film. And she, if they had an interesting face, if they had an interesting demeanor, she'd be like, sure. And we get this in the cafe scene with the old man who talks about his experiences during the war and losing his kids. And I think he was a circus clown, um, now retired. Yeah, that's the thing with this one, too. I mean, we've talked in our other discussions about the whole city versus country. And you definitely get that in here with the Nadia character coming from the country with her friend. And you've got Maximus kind of a liminal figure as far as he's both city and country, though to our earlier point, he prefers the country, prefers being out and about and leading this kind of Romani existence. I mean, he even can't remember if he refers to himself as a gypsy or if somebody else refers to him that way. And w one of his song is about a Romani woman or a, or a woman that he's describing that way. Yeah, so that's definitely a, a theme that is not even subtext, it's text. And then this whole idea, too, of the generations. We talked specifically, um, I think it was in Welcome and No Trespassing, about the three generations. And here we've got, you mentioned the, the clown or the former circus clown, this old man at the cafe. And we also get this old man at uh, the post office. This whole idea of these, and, and I don't 
remember if we get too many old women, but we definitely get these old men in here. And then, yeah, you've got your, I would guess that we could say that, uh, Valentina is kind of that middle generation. Then Nadia seems to be one of the up and comers. So we are still dealing with very familiar themes throughout all of these movies that we've talked about this month. And of course, the, the generation, the older generation lived through the double trauma of Stalinism and World War Two, and of course, the old chap at the at the cafe. He's he's talking about his losses in the war, but that actually has a a resonance for Kira Muratova herself, as she grew up without her father, as he was a paratrooper in World War Two, and was captured and executed by the Nazis. So there's like a an autobiographical element in there as well. Just thinking of generations, there's a scene where Nadia and Valentina come home and they just find like a bunch of women hanging out in Valentina's big apartment. Like there's this kind of jolly older tarot reading woman who came to borrow salt and there's this willowy girl with wild hair who came to return some books and borrow others. And everyone's complaining about their lives and Valentina's like still trying to write her speech that she hates and she's the speech is she has to convince people to move to the countryside. Meanwhile, her whole life is like frustrated because her damn husband slash lover won't come back from the countryside. So she's like, I have to convince people to move to the country, but as they're adults, can I convince them? Which is the most anti-Soviet statement ever. So all of these women are like complaining about different aspects of their lives and they're frustrated and they're waiting for something. And Nadia suddenly decides to have her tarot read because she's tired of guessing what the future holds What should she do? Wait till Maxim comes back and then make a scene or like try to find a place in a hostel and forget him. And then in contrast, we see through Nadia's eyes, this flashback to the cafe where we see Maxim and his geologist buddies admire this like sexy advertisement that shows a a woman who looks like a dolled up Valentina posing on like a chaise long with a welcoming smile and a drink in her hand. And they're like, haha, she's waiting for her boyfriend to come home. And they like, they like giggle at each other. But then in response, as if we really want to open up the window to what longing and devotion actually look like, we cut to Nadia just staring wonderingly at Maxim. These two sequences cut together are really important because Muratova is showing us like a variety of real women, and at least three of the four aren't living this state-sanctioned kind of normal Soviet life with a husband and kids. Like One doesn't want to get married anymore because life is so much better in a women's hostel, Each woman is kind of frustrated by the inertia of the present and the uncertainty of the future. And I really love that Muratova cuts abruptly between this group of real women and then the sexualized magazine ideal who is passive and contented. And Muratova didn't call herself a feminist, and like maybe we can talk about why afterward, but I really appreciate that the way that this film really foregrounds female desire and the real challenges that women face in Soviet life that that contradict the narrative of the patriarchal state. They really give a lot of time to that woman who is returning the books. She gets at least one good speech, if not a little bit more. And I, yeah, she is fascinating to me, just how she shows up and just kind of takes control of the narrative for a little bit. And she has that wonderful comment about how she used to, like the prettier guys, I don't know what the Russian was, but like the attractive guys. And then she started reading and was more interested in the more intellectual guys, but they don't like her. And she feels like she kind of regrets her choice uh, and her refashioning of her own taste. Maybe Muratova is addressing kind of like the the masculinization of women crisis a little bit there. 
in terms of this woman being like, I was living in ignorance and I liked all these loud boys, but now I want the smart ones, but they don't think I'm smart. Oh, I need more books. You know, like it's just this kind of, but she does say like, she used to live in a house with a family and she wanted to get married and she's lonely. And then she moved into this hostel with other, other girls who work at the same factory she does. And now she's, you know, she's pretty, she's all right. She doesn't want to get married anymore, which is so undermining state ideology. I just can't even tell you. It's so nice. This is a bit of a tangent, but there's this kind of this other split that we see between Valia and Maxim. They argue a lot about the different ways that they live their lives. Maxim says Valia is always spinning like a top and getting nowhere, spinning like a top until she gets sick. And then, you know, she says Maxim's like too much of a, I think she's the word gypsy or the subtitles did. And sort of he lives this escapist, nomadic life, noticing as little as possible Valia's always looking at Maxim. Valia's always trying to get him to talk to her, to open up to her. And he just wants to play silly songs on his guitar. He doesn't want to go deep in conversations. And she's like, I'm not examining you. I'm just looking and I like it. Do I need to keep my eyes closed? And Maxim's like, just keep them half open, right? Like, I'm living with my eyes half open and I'm doing very well. If you love me, you'll look at me with eyes in love, blind. And he like kisses her roughly. And between kisses, she's like blinking annoyed at him, not wishing to be shut up. And I love this scene because it sets up these two opposing ways to get through life. You're either spinning like a top and getting nowhere, you're trying to make progress, or you're living this escapist life. And it it really reflects this split in Soviet society at the time that was becoming really prominent between like complacency on the one hand and activism, creative dissent on the other. Like Maxim wants to go through life noticing as little as possible, just getting by without, you know, causing any stir. But In this film, we see that the eyes of Nadia and Valia are always wide open, which Muratova emphasizes with these frequent close-ups. And ultimately, like neither can ignore the discrepancies between the longed-for ideal and the discouraging present. And of course, it's so ironic to hear Maxim say this because he's played by a figurehead of the underground cultural resistance, Vladimir Vysotsky, right? So it's it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. Their interactions are so telling. And I mean, Maxim, yeah, he's, he's there so much, but he is not in charge of this story. And it is more how these two women perceive him rather than him taking charge and being like, I am this great geologist. I'm here looking for gold or silver and him and his bros hanging out and him playing a comb at the cafe and stuff. And I'm just like, all right. At times I'm just like, he's kind of a jerk, but I can see where these women would fall for him because he is very charismatic, but it is wild that he's almost like a figment of their imagination, like their combined imagination, because we just never really get him in the present. And it's interesting that we see more of him being a jerk in Valya's flashback, which makes sense because that relationship is much more long established and they just know each other better. So I don't want to sound patronizing, but she's also older and more experienced. And like, this isn't, you know, she doesn't have the kind of thing of like this being her first big relationship, maybe clouding her her recollection it just feels like Nadia's flashbacks are more like capital r romantic maybe i could be totally off base there i'd be interested to know what you two think 
I don't think you're off base. I think it is very much that one relationship is waning while the other one is waxing and you get that blush of young love from the Nadia character. Whereas with Valia, it's like, I've been through it with this guy and he's just about out of here unless he cleans up his act. Yeah, it's flesh of young love, but it's also disappointed young love because she came home to find out he has a wife there. Yeah, and I loved what you said about Maxim being kind of unsubstantial because even when he's there, even when he's he's there, he's never connecting with Nadia or Valia the way that they want. Especially Valia is really pushing for more engagement, more contact. But even when he's there, he's kind of insubstantial. He's absent, and you see the use of shadow a lot in the film support this. You know, the women before they have their flashbacks, they're sort of tracing shadows on their pillows or they're looking at their shadows on the wall or they're sort of moving their hands in the moonlight and maxim's characters is closely associated with shadows as well because the first night that he and valia spend together we have this long shot of her laughing her head off and he kind of swoops her up in his arms and and you just see their shadows get like giant 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 on the wall at night and then tiny 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 as they walk off to valia's apartment presumably to have sex on the first night they meant the sort of loose sexuality in this film especially between nadia and maxim was was quite an issue for the censors as well yeah, I like the style of this film. It feels very, you know, this was one of Maratova's first films, and it really feels like, hey, I'm pulling out all the stops when it comes to this. I'm going to shoot this stuff so that we have these shadow plays, so that we have, you know, these very tight close-ups. I just I really found the style of this to be very conducive to the storytelling and not it's not flashy for flashy sake it's just i'm doing this this is my movie and i'm really going to show you what i can do what what i'm capable of yeah and it's because she had made two films earlier with her husband at the time alexander muratov they did their diploma film together they graduated from school together and then they made one other film they were assigned films to sort of glorify rural life but their films were like a little bit too like, here's what rural life is actually like. <laughs> the censors were like, no, 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 you have to make all these changes. Kira Muratova refused. Alexander Muratov made the changes behind her back. They broke up. They had a very small kid. Alexander left. And Kira Muratova stayed in Odessa, where she had ended up because his family lived there. She stayed in Odessa her whole life. She made her own films. And she cut the first two films out of her filmography so this is the film, Brief Encounters is the film where she feels like she really started her career and she was the one calling the shots and no one was going to go behind her back and accept any censorship. We'll definitely talk more about censorship when we talk about the next film, but this film feels very much of a singular vision. It doesn't feel like it is compromised whatsoever. She cut out some scenes where it was like more implied that Nadia and Maxim spent more than one night together. Yeah, you have to make concessions just to keep moving forward when you're making a Soviet film, because at every stage you have to submit your work and then receive feedback and then make changes. So, so just to move forward, you have to make some changes or you have to pretend to at any rate. It's kind of wild that of all the films we've talked about this month, well, three populars was colorized in 2011, but the only color movie we've talked about has been amphibian man. There was resistance to using color film stock because it was such poor quality. Like the Soviet government was like trying to push color film stock on a lot of filmmakers, but it was just so bad that a lot of filmmakers preferred to use black and white. But 
pushing color film stock was like a way of saying, oh, oh, hey, you West, like, look how much color films we're producing. It was just another kind of Soviet bravado type uh, technological advancement, Cold War type of thing. Mm, I want to say the first or maybe it was the second time they shot Stalker, they just, due to a film processing screw up, they just lost all of the footage. It was just so bad that it was just like, right, well, we're going to have to do that again. I could not get the staff, apparently, when it came to uh, you know processing colour correctly. But just as an aside, in the preparation for this, I, I watched Kira Muratova's 78 film, which was a first colour film, Getting to Know the Big Wide World. And having just seen these these two black and white ones, that just blew my socks off with just how saturated and kind of sun-drenched the, the colours in that film film were. So it's very it's it's so different, but I'd highly recommend it just from the the colour aspect. All right, we're gonna take a break and come back with an interview with Professor Jane Topman, author of the book Kira Muratova, right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Jane Talmud, can you tell me a little bit of how you got interested in Russian films and Russian filmmakers? I was sort of one of the first generation of women who was interested and could actually say, I'm interested in studying women. Um, I might even call it gyno criticism, not necessarily feminist criticism. I was just interested in seeing what women did. And when I was in graduate school in the 60s and early 70s, nobody was 
looking at women. So that was how I did it. My degree is in Russian language and literature, which is the traditional one. And nobody in those years was also getting degrees in Russian film. Because to know Russian film, you have to know Russian very well. Most of them in those days weren't even subtitled. And in the middle of the 90s, I actually put together a new class at Amherst where I was teaching on the history of Russian film, which I taught for many years and I enjoyed it greatly and I hope my students did. So the people who went into Russian film in that first generation were either historians or literature people who happened to be interested in film. So we were self-taught as film critics. How was it seeing Russian films at this point? Was it relatively easy or was it very difficult to even track them down? It was difficult. And it was even more difficult to get available prints that were decent prints and that were subtitled. And the first years of my course, the content of the course was largely decided by which 12 films I could get, which which had subtitles. Uh, the situation is very, very different now. There was a Russian, the major Russian film studio put out an awful lot of films with Russian subtitles and English subtitles. But yes, I was kind of a pioneer. Is this because of the Cold War? Was it just difficult or why was it? Partially the Cold War, although by the 90s, we were coming out. We certainly were out of the Cold War, and I think that that may be it. There was no more political fear of teaching Eisenstein because he was making pro-Soviet films. That's what they paid him to do, so that's what he made, and he was a genius in making brilliant films within the restrictions he had, as were many Soviet filmmakers, particularly Muratova, too. When it comes to those 12 films that you try to show to your students, I'm so curious as far as were there the stalwarts, the ones that you're like, yes, I have to show this. Like, is it, you know, oh, yeah, for sure. We got to get Potemkin in there. Or did you try to change it up every single semester? Usually at the end of the course, there was one new contemporary film that had in the interceding year come out with subtitles. So I kept course kept growing at the end, but I always started and would have always started, I think, with a couple of weeks of the pioneers because those early Russian films, the Eisenstein and his colleagues and contemporaries, they invented montage and theorized about montage and experimented about montage in their effort to make films that mobilized the populace. And Lenin was very big on film and said film is our most important, the most important of the arts because it could, most of the population of Russian in Russia in that point was illiterate. So getting out bulletins and pamphlets, which the Bolsheviks had done a whole lot of, couldn't reach a large part of the population, whereas they could pull a projector into a village, put up a white sheet, and show a movie, and get an audience. A lot of Eisenstein's theorizing, if you know any of it, was 
intended to study how film can make us, the viewer react in certain ways. He was fascinated by that kind of science of, of the brain and, you know, how the film works on it. But in the process, they worked out a whole new film language. There was pre-revolutionary film, but it was sort of all melodramas. And then there was all of this radical new filmmaking financed, of course, by the not-so-wealthy Soviet government. In fact, one of the reasons that they were so good at montage was that they had to buy the film stock from abroad. And with montage, they could use a lot of short pieces of film and, and not have to use a whole lot of expensive film from abroad. So I know it's wonderful the way need sometimes affects art. You were of the age where you could actually study women. And how does that cross over with the study of Russia? Well, obviously, it was Russian women in the loose sense of the word. Muratova was actually born Romanian and lived in Odessa for most of her life. Uh, which is now, as you know, and still will be Ukraine. Although she went to the Russian film, the Russians had a wonderful film school, which was called the All Union uh, Institute of Film Studies. During the 30s, they made beautiful use of some of the pioneering film theorists and film makers who weren't allowed to film anymore, but they used them to teach the next generation at the film school. Um, there was a lot of, a lot of things. There's a word in Russian called on the shelf. Uh, when films were made and then put on the shelf because some bureaucrat in the, in the huge film industry bureaucracy didn't like it for some reason. And that, that happened to both of Moratova's first films. And they were only, in fact, really brought out again after the end of the Soviet Union, so that I had never heard of her when I was studying. Since the economics of the Soviet film industry were also different from ours, because they could put a whole lot of government money, and it was all government money, into making a film, and then if some bureaucrat decided he didn't like it and and forbade it, it went, quote, onto the shelf, uh, where some of them sat for 10 or 15 years until politics changed. And the bureaucracy didn't care because it was just government money, whereas here we have the marvelous capitalist incentives that, that if you spent money, it's private money and you want to get it back. In some areas, a kind of strange kind of freedom because a lot of these talented film people supported each other. What Otheva's teacher at the Film Institute was a major figure in the 1920s in a group called the Eccentric, the Studio of the Eccentric Actor which was kind of very avant-garde, and he soon had to give up on that. But uh, I'm convinced that he passed on a lot lot of that to Muratova herself, who is pretty eccentric and really independent and liked doing what she wanted to do. And if the theater, if the studio didn't like it or the bureaucrats above didn't like it, well, she wasn't 
she fought back very, very firmly, you know, and just realized, just thought that, well, this is the way things are. Were there a lot of female filmmakers throughout Russian film history? Few, very few. More in the 1960s, Moratova was among the first of a group, I wouldn't say a generation, but a group of other women filmmakers, Shipitko, and I can name several others, but not at the moment. There are now more of them, but in the early years of cinema, women were usually relegated to editorial work, to editing films, because they had smaller fingers and they were much better at the gluing of one piece onto another. So there were some very famous film editors in the early days who were women, but no directors. When was the first time that you ran across Muratova and her work? In 1988, when my husband and I were both in the Soviet Union for a semester on the academic exchange, everything is, your wealth in Russian studies is how many, what kind of friends you have. And I had friends who said, go watch these films. They had just been taken off the shelf, and I was fascinated by them. And for many years, most of them were not available in the United States with subtitles. She was really hardly known at all. Then she was known by people like me who were scholars of of Russian and Soviet film. Just about the time, I think, of the end of the Soviet Union, uh, she found herself in Odessa, where she had lived that's where she was sent. You, you don't go and find a job in the Soviet Union. You graduate from a professional institute, and they assign you to a place to go to work. And a lot of that was complicated by the fact that she, until her mother died, she kept her Romanian citizenship. She was the daughter of revolutionaries. Her father was Russian, but had parachuted into occupied Moldova, which is where she where she was born is now what's modern Moldova. He had parachuted in to turn the people, you know, organize the people, and they turned him into the Germans, and that was the end of her father. So her mother was, I think, a doctor by training, a gynecologist by training. But she, because she had, had been educated abroad before the revolution and knew some foreign languages, was assigned to be... Romania's chief film censor for foreign films. She would watch foreign films because she knew French very well and decide whether or not they were suitable for being shown to Soviet, you know, delicate Soviet children and people. And she took her daughter along with her. So the 13, you know, the teenage Muratova got private showings of all kinds of classic French films and Italian realism that nobody else in the country could see, but she saw with her mother. So that was a big, I think, a big factor in making her so independent and reluctant to bend her head to, to censorship. She was, she was a very independent-minded woman, and her, her films show it. And after the end of the Soviet Union, her films became extremely difficult and extremely individual. But by then, she was known as a major figure, and no one was about to criticize her. So her, the last years of her life 
were difficult financially, but she was uh, she was really the only famous filmmaker or reasonably well-known filmmaker that Ukraine had when it became independent. I know at least there was at least one woman who maybe was the minister of of culture who was a big booster of hers and and managed to get her funding for her films. You were in the Soviet Union in early 1988. Early 1988. That's the Moscow spring semester. Yep. For people that don't remember it, that was one of the most tumultuous, interesting times in recent, well, recent 40 years ago or 30 years ago history. But my God, it must have just been wild to be there during that time. It was amazing to, you know, every week a new they're, they're printing Pasternak, they're printing Solzhenitsyn in literature, and as well as films that were being taken off the shelf. I had taught a course on supposedly Soviet literature, but I said, honestly, this is Russian literature that's not published in the Soviet Union, because most of the stuff published there is not worth reading. And by the end of that semester, in the course of that one semester, almost every book on my syllabus was published in the Soviet Union. Uh, it was miraculous. And it was indeed, you're right, it was the most incredibly exciting semester of my life to be right in the middle of of huge social and political political changes, living in a two room apartment with kitchen in Moscow with my husband and our two children, which was another story. But it was fascinating. And the title of our book came from the fact that by the end of the semester, we said, this is getting to be like what was happening in Prague in 1968, the Prague Spring before the Russian tanks arrived. So we decided to call it Moscow Spring. It was it was really exciting. We've been privileged, I think, by being exactly in our generation of going through, uh, you know, most times if you study a country, it doesn't change very much between the time you start and the time you finish. But <laughs> our country has changed at least twice, if not three times. As the Chinese say, may you live an interesting life. <laughs> For us, fortunately, since we're not there, we don't have to live there. And in fact, we probably in our lifetime will never go back there. Many, many times in the 70s and 80s and 90s, as Bill was writing his books and I was helping, and we have many friends and lived, loved living there. But that was, we loved living there because we had dollars. We were on some kind of grant. We weren't trying to find ourselves a livable apartment. You know, it was a, it was really kind of academic tourism in a way, but it was wonderful. Maratova's films, they were shelved, as you mentioned before, but she was able to keep making films even though her first two films were shelved? Because she had graduated from the film academy, which meant that her profession was filmmaker. And so they kind of had to have work for her. At one point early on in her career, after they had turned down, I think both of these two, they, they unqualified her. They tried to 
take away her qualification as a director. But still, since she worked at the Odessa studio and there was no unemployment <clears throat> in the Soviet Union, they had to keep her on doing something and they suggest either she work in the library or in the garden of the studio. And she did that for a while. So, but she stuck to her guns until times changed. She even has a, a phrase that I quote in here within the, the book, which is something like, you know, they ignored me for years. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. And suddenly it's, oh, you know, then it was, you're stupid, you're, we don't want you. And now suddenly it's, you're great, you're wonderful. Here, film, take this money, film over and over as much as you want. And she, she was not naive about the politics behind it. What was found objectionable about Brief Encounters and the Long Farewell? Brief Encounters, they were shocked, shocked by the the basic relationship there is between a woman bureaucrat, a youngish woman bureaucrat in the city Soviet, the city government of Odessa, who works in the glamorous field of water supply and sewage, which in Odessa has always been an ecological problem, and her sort of unregistered marriage with a wandering geologist who, being a geologist in those days, was a way to get away from the structure, the strictures of life in the bureaucracies. You were out for, you know, weeks and months in the in the wild, and the bureaucrats weren't there with you. Some people found a bit of cultural freedom, including Joseph Brodsky, for one, the, the, the poet. And the cast was fantastic just by luck. They, they found that the, the lead woman actress, when they did the first takes, just didn't work, and it was too late for them to find somebody else. So Morata for herself plays the lead. And the, again, they had trouble with finding a male uh, hero who wasn't otherwise engaged in some other film, but a young singer-songwriter named Vladimir Wysotsky, who became a superstar in Russian underground and above-ground culture, said he would play it. So the cast, the basic romantic pair, is a fantastic cast. By the time the film was finally released, she was well better known as a filmmaker, and he was very well known. So the film was very, very popular. And the young actress who played other apex of the triangle, was, this was her first film, but she became hugely popular uh, later on in life and made many movies. So it was a a film as if it were made for 15 years later when it was finally <laughs> released. Did it show at all when it first came out? It was not exactly on the shelf. It was, they had various categories of films that would be played a lot, i.e., you know, patriotic films about the war and that kind of thing. Uh, and at the very bottom <laughs> was something like the third category, which meant only show it in film art clubs and, you know, small, small, strange places, but not to be mass shown. And very often she herself would, there were, there were such things as film clubs, clubs of film enthusiasts. And 
they could have showings of films. And she often traveled through the Soviet Union carrying the reels of her film with her and showing them in film clubs. So it wasn't technically totally, totally on the shelf, but Dolge Provody was put on the shelf. Oh, well, not just right off the back. There's always a long bureaucratic trail of, uh, there was one of these where they, they sent, God forbid it should be seen by anyone else, but they sent the film to committee of one of the film hierarchy, bureaucratic hierarchies, and they all took it home to their dachas, their, their houses in the country outside, you know, their country houses outside the city where they must have had facilities. I guess they had projection, primitive projection stuff. So they could watch it there where nobody else would see it and give their opinion on it. Josephine Wall has a wonderful book on Russian cinema in the 60s, but the whole story of the Soviet film bureaucracy is a bit fantastic. I'm just surprised that these films survive. You would think that they would just destroy them if they were that objectionable. You're right. And very seldom, though, they were, they, somebody was always around to make sure, you know, in other words, you've got the bureaucracy and you've got the film people. And the film people, remember, were all trained by the old generation of experimenters from the 20s who taught at the film school. So the film people, the art, the real artists, there and the creative people kind of supported each other and if they got into any position where they could help out she was one of her films was was vetted by her her teacher Gerasimo stepped in and tried to get it taken off the shelf in the case of the long farewell there were only a couple of copies of the film and someone kept it underneath their bed for several years. When it came to the the filmmaking process, was there also that whole idea of reviewing the script before the cameras even rolled? Oh, yes. Long Farewell, Dolge was written by, was done by a very good, talented woman scriptwriter named Natalia Ryazantseva, who was a close friend of Moratova's. And they bat to pieces before it was even allowed to be filmed. Uh, because first of, you know, let's see if I can find some of these quotations I have here. Why is the mother depicted this way? She once made a mistake. She's an ordinary person, a humble, low status worker, but she's raised a good son. Isn't that the essential way to depict her this way as a ridiculous, arrogant, intelligentsia position? Okay. And that kind of thing. In other words, socialist realism, of which you've probably heard, is defined as the depiction of life in its emerging reality. Translated, that means you've got to make the film about how life is going to be under communism rather than how it is now, which made real realism rather difficult. And anything sad, cemeteries, deaths, families that didn't get along, all the the things that are so interesting in filmmaking, there was any sense of negativity about them. They were just no-nos. And they didn't like the depiction of 
of in long farewell of the mother who is a single mother who has been living in one room her whole life with or since she was divorced with her son who is now reaching adolescence and wants to be free from this wonderful but kind of overpowering mother and he wants to go live with his father who was divorced early from his mother. The father again has a kind of wandering profession. He's an archaeologist, which is always, you know, a signal of kind of, and he, he just wants to leave and go live with his father and his mother, of course, whose whole life is, is around the, her son is, is just, uh, devastated by the thought that he's going to leave her. Not permanently, but, you know, leave. And they they say things like the depiction of the mother is they made her them change her profession from typist to professional translator. But all kinds of fantastic things happened in the history of Soviet censorship. This whole idea of the wandering, was there a fear of this rootlessness of wandering? Oh, yes, because rootless wandering people can't be controlled. And the whole Soviet empire was about control. And if things getting out of control were very scary, which you may notice in recent Russian history, very recent history. When these films were finally made available, I imagine that it was probably during Glasnost and Perestroika. What was the effect? How did people react to them? The intelligentsia, which is a Russian word, meaning people for whom books are more important than money, roughly, were delighted. And the people that I, those were the people I connected with in Moscow who told me, you know, you must go see this, you must go see that. When I would arrive, they would say, this art exhibit is playing, this play is, you know, and clear for them. The people who would not have enjoyed these movies probably didn't go to see them anyway. I don't think they were ever mass market films. I'm sure they weren't. But they were highly regarded by critics and people in the film industry and people who loved film as an art. It's one thing to enjoy these films and to even study them, but you wrote about these, and I'm very curious how your book came about. I was an academic, and what academics do is they teach and they write. And since there was really nothing available at that point in English, and Moratova certainly deserved a, a, a study, I did this as introduction to Moratova for English speakers. Unfortunately, I, I published it in 2005, after which she made quite a few more films before she died. But at least, and, and I liked doing that. I would think of a lot of my books were first looks at previously underappreciated women. I chose much of the beginning, my early work, and my thesis was on the poet Marina Svetaeva, who was major early 20th century poet whose name wasn't even pronounced very well by people here who were trying to give my biography before a speech. But she is now recognized even by many in the West. So I just saw that as, in a sense, my, my the reason for my career. I taught students to love Russian language and literature, 
but I also wanted to introduce English-speaking people to some of the unknown, very talented women in that society. When you wrote your Maratava book, were all of her films to that point available? More or less, mostly less. I remember a discussion with a film, a negotiation with a film scholar in England who had taped one of them off a BBC show <laughs> on television. And and my attempts to get that copy of that film so I could study it. All of the films that I studied were on usually DVD and sometimes very bad DVD. Uh, and then towards the end, they began coming out on, on Soviet and or Russian produced. They were on DVD and not. then the CDs began to come, coming out at the end of her career. And the other day, a couple of months ago, I went back to Amazon and discovered that almost everything is now available on CD, not always with English subtitles, but it's available. So there's there's obviously a demand and there's interest and people all know her name. I mean, intelligentsia people, but she is one of the major Ukrainian and that's the irony of the Soviet Union. Um, it was such a multinational state that many of the another director named Parajanov, who was Armenian from Tbilisi, very famous now in the West, made student made films at what was called the Dovjenko Studio, um, named after Dovjenko, a very uh, very important early twenties Soviet twenties and thirties Soviet filmmaker who was Ukrainian, uh, but this studio in Odessa was originally founded because that was the sunniest part, it's on the Black Sheep, sunniest part of the empire, where they could count on more days of sunlight to shoot films. Right. And there was nothing really Ukrainian about it, except that it was in Odessa, which was a pretty multi-ethnic city itself. And most of the people in Odessa, as Moratova spoke Russian rather than Ukrainian. Even after Ukraine became an independent state, Moratova kept making her films in Russian because she was a Russian speaker. And in those days, there was no particular problem with it because almost everybody knew Russian. The reason Ukrainian had been disdained was that traditionally, Russian had been spoken by the educated people in the cities, and Ukrainian was the language of the peasants, and that's why Russians have always been downgrading it. And it was only maybe a 100 years ago or in the middle of the 19th century that there began to be an educated Ukrainian intelligentsia of writers and critics who wrote in Ukrainian and advocated making Ukrainian into a literary language. So that's one of the things that's underlying this Putin's attitude that Ukraine has never been an independent state. Well, if you don't recognize people having a culture, it's much easier to conquer them. Invade them. Yeah, absolutely. And they do. It's a more varied. Ukraine is more multi-ethnic, I think, than than Russia is. Russia takes people from the Central Asian 
there are a lot of Central Asians working in Russia because they can't get work anymore. But modern Ukraine is a very tolerant, multi-ethnic country, which under Putin, Russia is not. You mentioned Parjanov, and was he a contemporary of Muratova? Yes, they were contemporaries. They knew each other, and uh, Muratova highly regarded him. And as you probably know, he was imprisoned for several years for the crime of homosexuality. And she was one of the few people who dared to write to him when he was in jail, letters of support. So, yes, they were, and she admired him greatly, and he admired her. That would be an interesting study, I think, of the two of them together. But they were both equally independent and sui generis. You specifically wrote an entire work just on the, is it asthenic syndrome? Yes, the asthenic. Asthenic is, I had to look it up myself the first time. It's a illness in which you keep falling asleep. Asthenic syndrome, which is usually regarded as her most important film, it's a very difficult film, but it was made, I believe, in 18, in 1989, just at the moment when the Soviet Union was falling apart. It became, along with a film called Repentance, which was made in Georgia, it was seen as one of the two films that were proof of the changes in in Pietistroika and the other, even more glossnost, which means opening up, giving, giving, literally giving voice to. Um, I had Russian friends who saw film these two films and said, "Oh my God, yes, something is really changing <laughs> in the Soviet Union." They, it's a very difficult film, which again, the central figure is a woman who is just. So whose husband has died and is so grief stricken um, that she uh, hits out, strikes out at everything and everyone. And that turns out to be a black and white film within a film, which then we see the people ending the film and asking some hostile and non-understanding questions. And then everybody leaves and it switches to color, and we see one person left asleep, <laughs> still sleeping in the movie theater, and that becomes the hero of the second part of the story, who is a, a teacher, and when he can't take what's going on, he falls asleep <laughs> in sometimes awkward situations. Did you ever get a chance to meet Maratova? Yes, I did, twice. I did an interview with her in the early 90s in Moscow in the home of a mutual friend, uh, and that was very important. Muratova's talking, she's very perceptive in talking about herself, and I often quote her in my book because she's right, <laughs> strangely enough, about what she does and why she does it. I can't remember which came first, but I think I also met her maybe first at Yale University when I was I was already teaching at Amherst but I still had friends back there where I had been in graduate school and she was coming with one of her movies the the fourth movie called Getting to Know the Big World um and it was shown at Yale with subtitles and 
then she was going to a class and I was asked to go along and translate during the class, which was a feminist, a class on feminist criticism, actually. And she said something like, as we're walk- we were walking along, and I explained to her that this was going to be a class on feminist criticism, and she said, what's feminist criticism? And I said, well, there's Marxist feminist criticism, and <laughs> there's this kind of feminist criticism, and she sort of gave me the old eye roll. And but we, and the class mostly consisted of women, and they were very good viewers. They had seen her film the night before, and they asked good questions, and there was a good discussion. And then she said, and I shuddered knowing I was going to have to translate this. She said, you know, I think if I hadn't found my my life, that what's important to me in art, I might have become a feminist too, <laughs> I thought. I thought, oh, my God, that's kind of what she was like. You know, she never worried about offending anybody. She said what she thought. My friend who knew her fairly well in Russia, the problem was she was in Odessa most of the time and didn't come to Moscow very often. So when we were in Moscow um, and she she was in Odessa, you know, it wasn't that we could get to know her very well in Moscow, but... I did have this long interview, which I'm looking for, which I've never actually published, but which I should, but which I took a lot of interesting quotes from in the book. If somebody was new to her work, where would you recommend that they start? Probably at the beginning, because these two films, certainly uh, long, brief encounters, is in a sense being a... It's difficult enough because she does not tell the story in a, in a uh, consequential way. In other words, we never actually see the hero, the wandering guitar playing of Wysotsky geologist. We never see him in the present tense. We only see him in flashbacks by the two women who love him. The, the country girl and the city bureaucrat who was played by Muratova. And so the, just simply the fact that it was a, a non-sequential screenplay, you know, that it was edited. So it kept going back and forth really through some of the bureaucratic critics. You know, you had to make everything easy to watch for the people. That was socialist realism. Uh, that is where I would start, partially because the, the three characters who are playing the three parts of the triangle uh, are, are all such wonderful actors. Mordakova turned out to be a pretty wonderful actor herself. So you get to see her, and uh, it's it's probably the most accessible. She already goes on to more uh, more abstract kinds of montage in her in the second film. Uh, but the two of them, which she called provincial melodramas, they're definitely of a piece with one stage in her work, and they're the easiest, I think. Aesthetic Syndrome is a, is a very difficult film, and she meant it to be. It's about the collapse of a culture, really, at the end of the Soviet period. And at one point, a woman on the subway simply is so 
upset at everything going on for no for what reason we don't know that she just breaks into a stream of profanity as the subway goes on you know that was a problem you didn't use profanity in soviet films never right soviet people never swore right never <laughs> No, never. <laughs> but it's it's a brilliant film. It's long and it's somewhat difficult. But if you want to see a film about a society in crisis, that's the film. What have you been up to lately? Are you working on anything these days? What? No. I think one writer in this family is enough. And now that I'm retired... I'm very busy. I go to as many movies as, as I can, and we have in Amherst a wonderful nonprofit arts theater, which is, yes, one of the things that makes life worth living around here. I always did love teaching, but what I'm doing now is I am volunteer teaching English as a second language. I used to teach Russian as, as a second or third language. I just like teaching languages and the women, young women in their 30s that I teach, I have three students already, which is about all I can handle. They're all women coming to the States and they're all women with some education, with higher education, actually. One is mainland Chinese, one is Indian. The one who's gone back home was also mainland Chinese. And so in the process, I learn a great deal about other cultures. I find the the comparisons of Chinese culture and the Russian culture I knew fascinating. And I sort of, you know, understand why it, it is that way. I've met some lovely young women, and uh, I feel I'm doing good, and we have fun. I'm reading lots of books, and I'm doing all the things I couldn't do when I was doing three things at once. Now I'm only doing one or two at once. I'm also my husband's first reader, and he keeps stubbornly writing. Well, Professor Taubman, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Thank you for your good questions, and I hope you can get it down to something that makes sense. Я однажды гулял по столице двух прохожих случайно зашиб. И попавший за это в милицию, я увидел ее и погиб. Я не знаю, что там она делала. Видно, паспорт пришла получать. Молодая, красивая, белая. И решил я ее разыскать. Шел за ней и запомнил парадное. Что сказать ей, ведь я ж хулиган Выпил я и позвал ненаглядную В привокзальный один ресторан Ну а ей... We are back and we are talking about Kira Maratova and The Long Farewell. In this film, we see a mother, Zhenya, become more and more estranged from her son after he spends a summer with his father. 
Another black and white film a couple years later, also very triangular. We talked about how we've got this love triangle in the first film, and this one kind of similar, though I would say that the son is kind of the, the third point of that love triangle and just the way that the mother feels that she's losing touch with him. The long farewell, more than brief encounters, looks at the responsibility that falls on the shoulders of a kid who grows up with a single parent and sort of a very codependent single parent who sort of like has to take on these responsibilities. And the way that they speak sort of sounds like an old married couple. You know, she's very, she's sort of pecking at him and he's sort of like resigned saying yes, you know, you know, ignoring the stories he's heard several times before. They have a really entrenched relationship. You know, he he zips up her dress, he lights her cigarette. Well, they live in the same room, right? Which was not uncommon. A lot. It's it's pretty common for a lot of families to have a single room, even you know, into the nineties in a lot of what was then the former Soviet space. But this kid is sort of treated like a dropout. He's treated like a delinquent, but he he has a lot of emotional and, and practical responsibilities. And the kind of the crux of the film is whether he's going to abandon them or not. This movie is so stylized. Just within the first scene, you're just like, wow, look at the way that she's shooting this. Some of these framing devices that she's doing of some of these girls' faces and all this. I mean, it's just, it was really kind of amazing how different this film looks, though it's dealing with a lot of the same ideas. But again, you know, here we've got this kind of older versus younger thing. And it's interesting because the mother, she's our main character, but really so much of the movie is about Sasha, the son. And it's that struggle between kind of whose movie is this and whose side are we taking? Because there's a lot of times where the mother is just very overbearing. And I, I don't know if it was just like a personal thing or what, if I'm, what I'm bringing to this movie myself, but I was just like, Oh my God, I really was just embarrassed for Sasha so much of the time. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. The more I've thought about it, the more, and maybe I'm stealing this line from somebody else. So if I am, I apologize, but I think of it as being a sympathetic portrait of a thoroughly unsympathetic person so just like a little bit of background the initial strip the script was written by natalia riazantseva who is a famous screenwriter and she's sort of in her 80s now i think and she's still writing she just wrote a film for kirill sierbrenikov called betrayal but so she wrote this film about sasha this disaffected city kid around 1968 around the time of the soviet invasion of czechoslovakia when the government is like blocking anything that had any whiff of dissent and some kind of higher ups at Moss Films Youth Division where she pitched the script, tell her like, no one wants to see this film about a smart Alec kid and his unsympathetic mom. So Ryazantseva is like, all right, I need an ally. So she goes down to her friend Muratova in Odessa and they decide to together pretend that it's a film about Sasha growing up and learning to take responsibility. So they retitle the script to be a man and Odessa Studio doesn't want it because it's still too vague. Soviet films are meant to be instructive and this one is moral and emotionally complicated. But we actually know a lot about the back and forth with the censors for this film, which we can talk about later if you want. But at some point, uh, Muratova kind of opens the film up to be more about Genya about this frustrated urban single mom, and she adds scenes to make Genia more sympathetic. In terms of sort of the linkage of the films really quick, like 
calcification of Soviet society like began in the late sixties, and it was it was a gradual process. Like like bands became house arrests and exile and deportation, and the spirit of rebellion in the sixties turned into one of resignation. And the state is tightening its restrictions on independent impulses in art and critical thought and anything else considered dissident. It sort of makes this inept attempt to reignite ideological loyalty, but there's daily pressure to espouse values, Soviet values that no longer ring very true for many people, if they ever did. And so there's this cleft between what we mean and what we say, and it contributes to this kind of social corrosion and disillusionment in the stagnation era, which lasts from the late 60s to the mid 80s. And in brief encounters, we see people kind of orbiting each other. They never break out of their cycles. They just kind of meet briefly, right? We're just a few years into the stagnation era by 1971 when the Long Farewell comes out, and we see that no one is really moving anymore. One protagonist, Sasha, longs to move away from his mom, and the mom is kind of this chattering, provoking, overly bright in a gray environment woman, but she's she's been sitting at the same desk for 15 years, you know, and now her greatest desire is to prevent movement to keep her loved one from leaving. I think it just speaks to Muratova's like personal tenacity and her dedication to her vision that in this increasingly censored, tamped down, stagnant environment, she took a lot of the elements that the government objected to in brief encounters and like doubled down on them in the long farewell. We can see that even in the first line of the film, these two beautiful botanists in lab coats, they're like explaining the miracle of hydroponics to, I think, a government inspector. And they're like, we use 10,000 liters of water. And this to me seems like Muratova's response to the censoring of brief encounters. Like, you shelve my film because I've shown the ugly truth about water shortages? Like, fine, I'll open in the next film by talking about the wonders of our water supply. But of course, the apparatchik they're selling their hydroponic system to is like totally submissive. Like he doesn't care. He doesn't even believe them. Like no one believes in miracles anymore. It feels like such a waste what they're talking about. And then that they show the one plant turned upside down. I'm just like, okay, is this supposed to be like, yeah, we're talking about this, how great it is, but maybe things aren't as great as they seem. That feels very much like what she's getting at here. Zhenya and her son Sasha are buying plants to take to Zhenya's dad's grave. And what an ominous, rusting, gray, threatening graveyard that is. Like red stars on top of the grave arches, kind of like they seem to shoot down at Zhenya. They sort of, they come down into our face and it's just a very threatening, decaying kind of environment. Well, and how dare she talk about death in a movie and show a, a dying seagull. Oh, man. There is apparently a lot more dying seagull that had to get cut. <laughs> There's a lot more of that scene. It's funny how you get this juxtaposition with Genya telling this ostensibly jolly story about, like, what a funny... Old, old-fashioned, old chap. Her old man was, and what she's actually describing is is quite a oppressive, sinister, patriarchal guy. And then this is reinforced by the image of him we see on his tomb of this this kind of like almost snarling, snarling. <laughs> that was Freudian slip there, snarling, <laughs> almost Stalin-like, like grimace. The kind of. Big Brother is always watching you type type glare. Uh, I I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, the camera work in those 
especially those early scenes is is so interesting how it's it's often very close in and then kind of pulls back in a kind of like this weaving fashion it's it's very distinctive we really get a sense of the two planes that these two people exist on, Sasha and Jenya. Because Jenya's like a shark. She just needs to keep talking or she'll die. And like, do you know people like that? It's terrible. And But she's sort of like going on, like floating on, talking as if she's at a cocktail party, like giggling, flirting, sending clever. They're walking single file. They're not looking at each other. She's like, she's like a balloon kind of carrying herself away on conversation. And Sasha, her son, is like the tether, grounding her to the earth, being like, no, no, your dad's grave is this way. But he's bored and he doesn't want to be his mom's tether his whole life. But this kind of, this contrast between kind of Zhenya's lively speech and behavior it seems so jarring and so out of place in this alienated world. It's like the world is encased in jello, you know, and she's this this kind of flame struggling to survive in jello. And it's this contrast between active and passive, between like motorized activity and lethargy and silence. It's more pronounced in this film than it was in Brief Encounters, which I think in, kind of reflects this increasing divide within Soviet society as we enter the 70s between active resistance and passive acceptance. Yeah, she's that spinning top that you mentioned before, and he's that, man, just sullen teenager. But sullen, but he seems to get the chicks, man. It feels like chicks are just digging him like mad through this whole movie. He's always got women checking him out. Oh, you say that? Hmm. Masha, I felt like, was kind of toying with him, I felt, in, in quite a quite a mean, a mean way. But... Before we talk about that, I, I wanted to go back to the moment. This is still pretty early on. It's at their house party and uh, by by the lake, where Jenya is just chatting away, and Sasha's standing by himself, just trying to get a little bit of space. And Jenya says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "I'm thinking." And she says, "What?" And he says, "I'm." thinking and it's just just to her the idea that's that someone would want solitude and space and not for there always to be noise says quite a lot about her character i feel like a lot of the problems that she creates for herself is her inability to step outside of herself or even like self-reflect and see how she is coming across to other people because it just seems like she is the most, I wouldn't say blissfully unaware, anxiously kind of like vibratingly, <laughs> advisedly manic version of just, you know, not taking a breath and actually like self-reflecting and contemplating their own behavior and how it's affecting the people closest to them. Masha Gessen wrote about how the Soviet government undermined means of critical thinking by stripping away the means with which we think about ourselves. So like, so taking away kind of philosophy, psychology, these kinds of things from university, for example, to the point where Masha Gessen says that like, it... That, that people living in the Soviet Union were kind of like deprived of the ability to think. And they go into this in their amazing book, The Future is History, but it would be great to 
think about that in terms of Zhenya. I agree with you that Masha's just messing with Sasha. Poor Sasha, man. Like, Sasha is this frustrated ego. He's got so much desire, right? Like, he's, he's looking at the beautiful botanists. He's checking them out. You see longing on his face. He's got that little bumpless, like, mustache that all <laughs> yes. the have. And, like, he's just, you just really feel his desire in such a, in such a tender, aching kind of way, right? And, and all these women see through him. Girls his own age, they see through him and they, they toy with him. They're, they flirt with him in a way that he gets really embarrassed by and he gets resentful of. And he kind of comes back with these like little macho statements about how he never gets mad at women and like, but you know, he just read them in books and, and it's just, it, it, it's sort of, it's a really keen reminder of the way that like our bodies betray our egos when we're teenagers. Like we think ourselves adults and we think ourselves tough, but in the moment we panic and in the moment we let ourselves down. And yeah, I, yeah, I really feel like Masha, Masha didn't know what to do with Sasha because he's just gaping at her, which is fair. But yeah, I think she was messing with him delightfully. And it's interesting to see like the way that Sasha Sasha had this fantasy about about doing Masha's hair and then it kind of seems to happen but I I don't know at some point we're in Sasha's fantasy and then we see the reality of what actually happens. Yeah, and it's very uncliched how it shows his fantasy as well. It's I could be wrong, but I think that's one of the few bits early on where the music drops out and it just goes totally silent and we just see him imagining you know, smelling her hair in this slightly creepy way. This kind of like, is on the one hand kind of romantic, but also kind of like, you don't know this girl, really. So Masha does seem to be getting a kick out of, she is way out of Sasha's league and she knows it and she seems to be enjoying just the kind of like, yeah, I see the way that you're that you're looking at me, Sasha, and but I am having none of it. But at the same time, I'm 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 gonna just I'm not just gonna go away. I'm just gonna s- stay here and tease you in, in this sort of like talking to you in this kind of like I don't know this sort of slightly like sickly sweet patronizing voice. And she's talking about how like I'm in university and oh how you've grown since the last time I saw you. And it's just like and it's absolutely the like the last thing that he wants is to be reminded of how he's like still kind of a kid and she's like further to being an adult than he is. Yeah. It's, it's so funny how the the sound drops away when it seems like the emotions are the most intense in this film. Like when Sasha's getting ready to jump over that thing in front of everybody in the schoolyard or when Zhenya reads the letter for the first time. And Muratova, I think is showing us like the way that language gets co-opted by the totalitarian state and how it kind of loses meaning, especially at a time when there's this like great disillusionment with values and ideas that were once sort of triumphed and trumpeted. The totalitarian state kind of like leeches language of its meaning. And it also doesn't allow the kind of language that could convey alienation, that could convey this experience of being lost and being frustrated by a stagnant world. Like any language that could convey those feelings, any language that could convey an existential crisis wouldn't be allowed on screen. So she doesn't even give us music. She just cuts out. I think that's much more pronounced in The Long Farewell than it is in Brief Encounters. Yeah, another film where music plays a real key part. And it was interesting to be able to hear American rock and roll and British rock and roll in the film. I was like, 
oh, okay. And there's even people speaking English towards the end of the movie. I was like, well, this is interesting. I didn't expect to hear English in any of these films ever. Oh, and you hear Genia singing painfully in in, in English. I just found that so awkward because she's flirting so hard with that guy that it's just like, yeah, yeah. It's just, a, I, I just found it a bit cringeworthy. There's a lot of cringe in this movie. There's a lot of cringe. <laughs> it's almost like Alan Partridge levels of, of cringe at times. Before we get away from Masha and Sasha, there's just this moment where like Masha's been messing with him. She's like, okay, I guess he's not going to talk to me. And she gets up and she leaves. And Sasha sees that he, she left her hair ribbon and he like slowly picks it up and walks away and he tucks it into the inside pocket of his coat. And the sound of the waves get really heightened, like it's this blood flowing or something. But I was also like, oh, the amphibian man. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like, it's like yeah, aw, that's a nice little tie-in with the beginning and the end of Soviet month, I thought. Yeah, super serendipitous, right? Yeah, I don't know what it is about the ground in this film, because there's a shot of the ground, there's the... Um, the close-ups of Genya as she's uh, switching shoes towards the beginning of the film after they've they've gone to that, I guess, greenhouse or whatever, and then there's uh, the the ribbon that you're talking about. There's a few other shots of the ground throughout here, and I'm just like, oh, okay. So it 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 would seem like an unusual choice that they kept going to that. Speaking of unusual choices and shoes, there's also the bit where Genya <laughs> decides to play. <laughs> dog in her nice shoes i was quite surprised on the one hand she's not favored enough by the government to live in a more than one room apartment but yeah apparently she has enough money to be very lackadaisical about her uh her nice clothes. I totally get Genya. She needs something to happen. She has too many feelings for this stagnant, grounded world. And I think these shots of the ground really show us that the world is kind of stalling. It's grinding to a halt. It's really stagnant. Um, but yeah, she's like, I just really, I really identify with her having too much to say, too many things. Like, she just has to make something happen. And these characters are painful in films. I thought about Gina Rowland's characters and... I've rarely seen a film about a tightly wound person about to snap that resonated as much with me as Genya in this in this movie. And I, I worry about her. I worry about her and Sasha still. <laughs> but yeah, that thing with the shoes, yeah, it's it's embarrassing and it's ridiculous and it's funny. Well, there's also that line about how I I'm guessing it was supposed to be Leo Tolstoy, but in my um, subtitles it said Lev Tolstoy walked barefoot and he lived till 90. It's that man that she's flirting heavily with, the one with the bow and arrow. And I'm I'm still trying to figure out what the relationship is with this guy. Nikolai Sergeyevich, he's this guest at the – so they're at a sanatorium by the sea that like some friends of Genia are taking care of and kind of like house-sitting in. And so they have this like big lunch party. And Nikolai Sergeyevich is just like some guest there, but he's flirting heavily on Zhenya, and Zhenya's kind of like responding in her way. But but it's hard to know how much she likes him because she's always kind of just like going around chatting and being flirty at a cocktail party, like whether she's with her son at her dad's grave, like, you know, wherever she is, she's kind of just this bubbly person. I didn't know how much her, she really was attracted to him. Yeah, yeah, whether she's just 
fulfilling the role that she feels like she has to perform in that situation to be kind of sparkly and effervescent, even if it's you know quite forced. The point of having Nikolai Sergeyevich is that later on we see them uh, try to go on a date and Zhenya ends it early in a fluster because she's just found out that Sasha's about to move away to be with his dad. And the point of these interludes is to show that for Zhenya, it's the prospect of losing her family, it's the prospect of losing Sasha, not the absence of men that is tearing her apart. This is important because single older women at the time, especially independent women with educations and careers, were really being villainized as kind of sexually ravenous people who were unnatural, too masculinized to fit into normal families and ended up ruining normal families. But here we see Zhenya kind of interested in this guy, but ending up just brushing him off because she's concerned about Sasha. Like, Sasha's really the man in her life that she cares about losing at this point. Yeah, and she doesn't seem to have any meaningful friendships either with with men or or with women, at least that I could tell from this film. And, and it seems almost as a result of her loneliness that she is putting so much like emotional freight onto her relationship with Sasha and the very act of doing that is just becoming so overbearing that Sasha's just like, uh, yeah, I'm going to go live with my dad. Another person that I think we may hear his voice on the phone. I'm not even sure if we do. For sure we hear Sasha trying to reach him and this whole, you know, hey, I've only got money for three minutes and just this lack of communication between these two people. And we get this whole montage because we haven't really talked about this, the way that Sasha has a projector in his room and the room that he shares with his mother. And he projects these things up on the wall. It seems like a slideshow. So you've got like horses and birds and all these things. And at one point you get this whole montage of photos. And I'm guessing that there were photos taken when he was with his dad i mean this, these photos just look so incredibly fake to me that i was just like is this what i'm supposed to be seeing or is this like a <laughs> is this a commentary on all those really bad um jobs that they did white uh, uh, airbrushing people out of photos that uh stalin liked to do yeah i i read them as sincere i was hoping that they were supposed to be sincere there's a lot there it's um it's interesting that both films sort of have our characters making rash decisions based on bad phone connections, right? There's just, there's this rush of joy at any connection at all. And it goes to our characters' heads and they make these decisions. And even when characters are together, they're usually not looking at each other. Like even when Sasha and his mom are in their same apartment, they're side by side, or she's looking at him through opera glasses, or there's a mirror intervening. And so we really see characters becoming atomized, becoming disparate, diffused, unable to connect, just kind of ping-ponging off each other. And But they're really longing for this sense of belonging and longing for this connection that they don't know how to get anymore. And I think just, I mean, if you have no budget for a film, but you want to talk about someone who's there but not really there, showing them on a projection is a beautiful, a beautiful way to go about it. You see Zhenya kind of like do a deal with the male sorter who was also the non-actress who played Luba in Brief Encounters. She comes back to be the male sorter in The Long Farewell. And we see her do a deal with this male sorter to um, reroute Sasha's packages from the dad 
So Zhenya can open them first. And that's when Zhenya unwraps the packages and she goes back to the house and she's sort of smoking and shaking and she puts the slides in and she sees Sasha and the dad together in the slide and and she sort of walks to the wall and, and traces them. She puts her hand on the dad's chest and we realize that she's already gone through this kind of trauma of losing her husband and she still misses him. And, and soon this will be the only family she has, just these kind of figments, these projections. They'll live in her mind. She'll be just like Valia, but they won't be tangible anymore. Yeah, she is becoming the state <laughs> by by censoring her own son's mail. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, you're going to go there, huh? I mean, sh- yeah, she is really afraid to lose her son and just will stop at nothing, it feels like, to kind of sabotage this relationship with his dad. Mm, yeah, and we see that scene where she's, again, at the post office writing telegrams and she's just scrolling different iterations of them and there's like balling them up and throwing them away and it's just like oh my goodness she's having this very kind of public meltdown and you just on the one hand it's just like this is your own doing but the performance is is so good that you're also like you just feel so bad for her that 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 the way life has been to her and the way that she's responded and the fact that she hasn't had anyone to kind of be there for her who's you know an emotionally mature adult to like to help her through the stuff that she's just reacting in in these just incredibly destructive ways and Murataba pops in these little moments where we we start liking Jenya again like she's like writing these like scribbling out these telegrams she's like oh she's trying to write to the dad and just be like stay away and then she scribbles it up and and she finally gives up on her angry telegrams and she she goes to put the pen back on the table but it keeps rolling off and she goes to put it back and it rolls off again and it's just these like little this happens all the like 10 times or something this, these little relatable comedy moments help restore our affection for her and then she turns around and and the camera sort of turns with her and it pans slowly past all these young men just sitting, waiting for news, waiting for mail, waiting for phone calls. And they're playing acoustic guitar and they're sort of countercultural types. And we see Sasha there and he's sort of tapping his fingers nervously, just like Zhenya does. But the camera doesn't hold on Sasha, it just keeps panning, kind of putting Sasha in this context of a whole generation of young men just treading water with their lives, just waiting for something to change. Muratova put that scene in where Zhenya's kind of like pacing she doesn't know what to do. She overhears Sasha's phone call with his dad where Sasha's like, yeah, I'm coming to live with you. Mom doesn't, it doesn't matter about mom. Like, I don't care. I got to get out of here. And so Zhenya's still in the telegraph section of, I guess, the train station. And an old man is like, I forgot my glasses at home. Can you write a letter for me? And and she does just, you know, she's generous without thinking. She just, and and he's writing this loving letter to his kids who live far away and saying like, Every morning and every evening, I wake up thinking of you so far away. Please come back. And, and it's so, oh, it's so hard. It's so heartrending, but it also speaks to this kind of stagnant repetition, right? Like even in, even in the declaration of love, he's going to bed and waking up with the same thought. It's still like, it still conveys this kind of stuck cyclical stagnation that the world is, is evoking. But also this kind of over, overbearingness of the, like it's, clearly sincere and heartfelt but also it's so incredibly emotionally manipulative it's like look how bad you're making me feel by being so far away which 
you kind of get, but you also wonder why is it that his kids never visit? Like that's mm. not. I mean, maybe that is just they're selfish, but it is also possible that he's he's kind of like the ghost of uh, Christmas future in kind of like in relation to Genia. This is this is what lies ahead for her. We should say, too, that the father, I want to say, is an archaeologist. So not a geologist, but an archaeologist. So he also is rootless and also going around the countryside and doing these things. Also kind of a very adventurous, I mean, obviously, Indiana Jones. He could be living an Indiana Jones life. We don't know. And it, yeah, it's, it's sort of funny to think about this film as like an alternate future for the Brief Encounters people. Like we have this sort of spinning, active, independent woman and this, as you say, kind of rootless man. And, and like, what if Valia and Maxim did have a kid? Like, is this what would have happened? You know, like, would she be raising it and would he still be off? And it's in, Yeah, the, these films are so linked, man. But Valia just has, even though she is so busy and stressed and tired, she still has an element of chill about her. Like, she seems like she would be nice to spend time with, whereas Genya, you feel, I feel sorry for her, but at the same time, not not so sorry for her that I would want to spend more than five minutes with her. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not easy, it's not easy to be a single mom in, in Soviet life, like, it's it sounds like from what I've read, and um, I, I guess maybe it'll suck the humour out of you. Mm, yeah, maybe I am being way too harsh on her. I don't think so. I <laughs> I don't think that at all. Though I know the censors were complaining, what has this poor woman done? She's trying to raise her son. She's trying to do the right thing. And why are you making fun of her? And th- they did not like the way that Genia was being treated in the script. Mm, well, lack of self-awareness on their part. Like, they don't see how overbearing and, like, micromanagey and, like, lacking respect for, like, individuality and personal personal space like it's she doesn't seem to have grasped the fact that Sasha is nearly an adult now and kind of treating him like he's a like eight or nine year old boy who needs you know to constantly be told what to do like that whole business when he's meeting people at the sanatorium villa thing and he's he says hello to the person he's meeting for the first time totally you know completely politely he's not Kurt or anything but she dresses him down for not saying it exactly the way that she taught him and she's doing it in front of everybody and kind of kind of humiliating him and it's just like how many times has she done this to him and the bit on the bus like he's chewing his nails yeah he shouldn't be doing that that's kind of gross but at the same time he's like She's drawing the attention of the whole bus to him. And yeah, Sasha is not perfect, but he is he is very put upon. Let's talk about the scene where he finally bursts out and he finally expresses himself. And he's been looking for money in the house. Genia comes home to find him. She knows why he needs money. It's to go move away to live with his dad. She's She goes out on a date with Nikolai Sergeyevich. Sasha's sort of left amused at his mom's antics, uh, but still without money. And he kind of bursts out like mocking something his mom said, perfume from colleagues and doing kind of a violent version of her fluttery hand gesture. And he plays with words and he finds rhymes. 
and he finds better ones and he corrects himself and he repeats phrases like don't stare over and over and over again. And then we cut to this image of a naked little boy standing on a windowsill of an upper window kind of banging perilously against the glass. And I was freaked out. I was afraid it was going to be like an Antichrist moment. <laughs> but I think it's really a metaphor for Sasha who's trying to break free from his mom, but also still very vulnerable, very sensitive with this kind of fragile teenage ego. This way that that he can only let loose in rhyme, in poetry, it sort of expresses this alienation from the environment and from each other and from our means of communication. That's a dominant feature of stagnation cinema anyway, but it's something that Muratova, maybe more than anyone, really expresses by showing everyday languages incongruous with feelings and, and inept to convey them. This one was a tough watch, I have to say, <laughs> just because of those moments that you're talking about with the, her embarrassing him and him, you know, mocking her. I mean, this was, was not an easy film and I can see why the censors really took umbrage with it, but weird things like, she shouldn't be a typist. She should be a translator. Like by upping her station, I guess it makes it better or something. I'm like, w why? Why is this that you have to, like these choices that they made to futz with the film seemed very odd or like what was it? They made her shoot a scene of, uh, Genia, uh, offering to help out a girl find an apartment. Is that right? She finds Tatiana. Tatiana's like this, like, uh, kind of like, Lou Reed character. She's like this, like great countercultural badass teen girl whom I love with all my heart. She's someone I would be friends with. But so Yevgenia gets her a job at the somewhere in her office, um, and we see her being like, "Yes, yes, she's very polite and responsible." And meanwhile, Tatiana's just like spinning around on an office chair, making little like jet sounds. Like, um, yeah. But yeah, so I think I think they wanted to see Yevgenia or Genia get Tatiana a job because they wanted the film to be more cheerful and optimistic about the potential for advancement in Soviet society. They wanted her to cut other scenes apparently that expressed restlessness and meaninglessness and nervous tension. But like that's the whole film, man. Like what? Like so? From what I understood, like Muratova made some light changes, but essentially sticks to her guns and finishes the film. But someone at the Odessa studio, studio is like determined to tighten restrictions on filmmakers. And this film was finished and it dropped into their lap like a present. They don't just report the film as inappropriate. They actually send copies to the heads of the Central Committee of the Soviet Union, who are all at their fancy dachas because it's the summertime. So they're like, you know, just imagine like the heads of state watching this film in their dachas. Like, and like, so they have big objections, but their main objection is not ideological. It's an objection about the form of the film, the combination of fantasy and reality, like when Sasha kiss kisses Masha's hair. Maybe we should talk a tiny bit about why the form is a problem. So Brief Encounters is, is withheld from audiences because of the director's political unreliability and its incompatibility with the aesthetic canons of socialist realism. And socialist realism refers to the set of standards that all forms of art had to reflect in the Soviet Union from 1934 to 1991 when it collapsed, right? And so socialist realism, it isn't really realism. It insists that artists show this glorified Soviet life, not reality as it is, but as it ought to be. And it's this kind of magical thinking, but it also mandates that stories are instructional, so they have clear heroes and villains, a linear chronological structure so that everyone knows 
what's right and wrong, who's punished and rewarded and why. Um, and so the censors and critics really had a hard, a, a problem with Muratova failing to approach situations in her film linearly from a party-minded position, and they objected to the material being able to be interpreted in various ways. So so the the Central Committee of the Soviet Union sees these, this film, The Long Farewell at Their Dachas, and then they write a letter to the Ukraine uh, Cinema Board, and then... Uh, the the head of this committee, the head of the Ukrainian city, cinema committee, is fired because they allowed this film to even get made. The long farewell is banned, and no copies are printed, and no one who worked on it is paid, and Kira Muratova is disqualified. Like she's not allowed to direct anymore. She demands that the Odessa studio give her other work, and they send her a list of vacancies, which begins with a cleaner and a gardener's assistant. And so she takes those two jobs because she just hates bureaucracy. <laughs> so she's she's a little bit of Maxim at the end as well. Yeah, and the, on, on the cans of the print, they like apparently chalked not for distribution, just in case there's any ambiguity. If you find these lying around, don't give them to anyone. If you made this movie in Hollywood and then handed it over and... The, you could somehow get away with, you know, doing it un, under the producer's radar and then handed it to them and go, went, what do you think? They were like, uh, you think people will see this? It's really good, but it is, as you said, right, it is a hard watch in a way that Brief Encounters, I wouldn't say is easy, but it's it's smoother, whereas this is just like maximum levels of jagged. Even the editing, like there's so many smash cuts on this one, going from that like thumping but melancholic piano to then suddenly cutting to another scene without like any any kind of like tapering off. It's just crunch. I can see why that it didn't it you know didn't go down smoothly. Well, what's interesting is like during the 16 years that it's withheld from release. Like the long farewell was still regularly shown, I imagine secretly to students at Vik at the main Soviet film sc- film school in Moscow, where it influences a whole generation of Soviet filmmakers. And as late as 1998, like apparently an informal poll of Vik students, like uh, by a large mar- margin, voted this one of the best Soviet films. And I've heard anecdotally that the, the final scene of the long farewell is still shown to students today. That end scene. You're talking about montage. Oh, man, you are almost drunk with the way that the camera is moving and the way that we are cutting. And I mean, it's a breakdown. She basically has a breakdown at the end of this film. It's really tough to watch. It's at a big party for her office. Genia was passed over for a job interpreting for a foreign delegation earlier in the film. At the end of the day, it turns out the person, the guy they passed her over for now can't do it. So she has to interpret at this big party. Kind of like that uh, speech that is being written because the other people had to turn it, you know, they had to pass it over. Yeah, I love how women in this film are like the shock absorbers of ineptitude. And like, that's real, though. That's real. Well done, Muratiba. But yes, it's like this black tie party, and it feels a little bit Fellini to me. And Fellini was like a huge hero of of sort of dissident Soviet filmmakers. Sasha's there, and Genia spots him, but then Sasha hides from his mom, and so she Genia kind of like goes on this 
this, ramp- this rampage with her friends trying to find Sasha, and they finally find him, and she introduces him to all her friends and the higher-ups, and they- she treats him like a little boy, and she finally drags him to where they're meant to, to sit to watch the stage show, and um, someone is sitting in, in Jenya's seat, um, and this whole time, Jenya's Jenya's come around to the idea of Sasha leaving. She's depressed. She's frozen inside. She's panicking, but she's not outwardly stopping him. She's helping him pack, trying to find the suitcase for him. She's trying to come to terms with it, but it's just, it's creating a crack in her. And when people take the seats that are reserved for her and Sasha, like she, she, she seems like she's about to cry. And she stands, she stands in the seat. She stands in front of everyone, blocking everyone's view and Sasha keeps saying, like, Mom, it's okay, it's okay. And he keeps trying to pull her away back down the aisle. But as soon as he lets go of her hand, Genya, like, holding back tears, walks back and stands where she's meant to stand, where her seat is on principle. And this happens a few times. And I just feel like Genya's her job has been undermined. She's lost her husband. Now she's losing her son to her husband. And I think she objects to losing her seat because she just can't – she can't object to losing Sasha, like, not in public – and she's struggling to keep control over this like last paltry thing that is left to her. You know, this last thing she can give Sasha a good view. Like we just heard her say, like, oh, what can I offer him here? That's why he's going, ha ha. And and Sasha finally keeps a hold of Jenya's hand and, and succeeds at leading her away. And they almost run away down this long aisle. Then they pass really close to the camera, and we see Jenya's face just crumple like a little kid, like embarrassed and overwhelmed because she's made a scene, and there's just tears streaming down her face. And, and we see Sasha's face in close-up, too, and he's really thoughtful and profoundly sad, but he has like a new sense of resolve, as if he's just realized something important. Outside, they sit by a fountain, and just on the spur of the moment, Sasha says that he's going to stay and, and stay with Jenya. And... It seems like another kind of snap decision to stay together in an unhealthy relationship because you're just, you're longing, because you have this love that is so hard to express and so hard to hang on to. Um, and, and just like Valia and Maxim staying together, it seems like this is an unhealthy cycle destined to repeat. And so people are again stuck in this kind of cyclical, entrenched, frustrating thing out of love. I almost thought at first that we were looking at another mother and son because I didn't realize that awful wig that she's wearing. And then that comes off the eye makeup when she's freaking out. I mean, she looks really rough at the end of this film. And my God, does it just end? It just smashes to, you know, Ali mentioned smash cuts. It smashes to the end uh, title card. I'm like, whoa, okay. That was fast. That I was hoping for a little bit more resolution but it kind of just shows me nope we're just ending the story right here sorry but that's the way that it goes because again keeping you on edge keeping you uncomfortable one of the words jane taubman used about muratova was unsentimental it's like yep yeah she does not have time for like oh yeah that was rough but we'll just make it we'll pat you on the back and make you feel better it's like nope go and go away and think about what you've just seen (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's really true, though, and that's something that I notice about a lot of Soviet dissident cinema, uh, filmmakers, and especially Soviet dissident auteurs like Alexei German and um, Alan Klimov, is they do get like progressively more sour and difficult to watch and in your face, and it's because every opportunity to make a film is getting taken away from them by this 
totalitarian state, right? And so you're increasingly frustrated. And this might be the last thing you get to make, you know, and you want to show people how horrible the world is and how much how much resistance there is to any momentum and any creativity and any innovation. And like, yeah, it's 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 worth sticking with these directors, but it does get increasingly uncomfortable. Until by the end in the Putin era, Alexei Gehrman is just like throwing shit in your face. Literally. <laughs> I would say to people, give brief encounters a shot, and if you like it, then then try long farewells. But probably don't do it the other way around. <laughs> Should we talk about like what happened to Muratova after after her credentials get revoked? Okay. She's working on jobs, she's like helping to write some scripts. She gets the chance to direct on her own again in 78 to make Getting to Know the Big Wide World, which also stars Nina Ruslanova, um, who plays Nadia in Brief Encounters, and is just a, an amazing actor. Like, if you can see her in anything, you should. And she was also in a lot of Alexei Gehrman's films, like um, I, my friend Ivan Lapshin, and she revises that role in uh, Cristalia of My Car. And she's just unbelievable. She really, she gets incredibly expressive the older she gets. Ruslanova is like one of my favorite actors, um, and y- you should just see her. Um, but anyway, back to Muratova. In May 1986, the winds of change, of openness, glasnost, and restructuring perestroika are in the air, and, and um, the the Union of Soviet Filmmakers, with heavy involvement from Elim Klimov, forms a, a conflicts commission to kind of release from jail these films that had been shelved over the past three decades, and they kind of do like a like an, an appeals court for these films and look at the reasons why they were banned and then whether or not they can be released now in this kind of new atmosphere of openness. And one of the first films to be reviewed by the commission are Brief Encounters and the Long Farewell. And Muratova had been perceptive enough and determined enough to capture the sense of entropy that would increasingly dominate Soviet life into the 80s, so that when these films finally get released by the commission and people finally see them, they're shocked at how relevant they seem and how fresh and how ahead of the, their time they feel. These films get kind of shown and well-received in Europe and the U.S. as well. And Muratova is invited to speak about them and like sit on juries at festivals all over the world. There's a retrospective of her work in France. And The Long Farewell wins the Fipresis uh, Award at the 1987 Locarno Festival. And then in, two years later, in 89, Muratova makes Asthenic Syndrome, which, if you think the long farewell is difficult, like Asthenic Syndrome is gonna, it's just, it's, it's bristling, it's sour, it's, it's all about an apathetic civilization in its death throes, basically, and it causes this kind of international sensation. But the Soviet government holds Muratova up as a poster girl for Glasnost. Uh, Muratova said, they started to make use of me for their own profit. They said, look how bad it was for Muratova and how good it has become for her. So anyone who thinks things are still bad can just shut up. Um, and so, which, I, which I can tell she was thrilled about by her, her recollection of that. Yeah. And like the state sends her on this like big speaking tour of American universities with Alexei German and Alexander Sokorov. So anyway, the, the Soviet Union uh, dissolves and uh, Muratova is still in Ukraine. Um, she's there's a lot less interest in Russian language cinema. Ukraine has is pretty impoverished at this point. Funding is dwindling, but still, between 1991 and 2005, Muratova made six feature films and one short, 
and her work got increasingly aesthetically and thematically challenging. She's really interested in like repetition and mannerism and ornamentation, and everything's imbued with her characteristic caustic humor. Um, and she discovers Renata Livinova, who becomes a filmmaker and who's still working in very, uh, very famous and interesting. There's, there's a lot of argument about Muratova as a filmmaker and sort of labels, like, is she Ukrainian? Is she Soviet? Is she Russian? Because she spoke Russian and her characters speak Russian. Um, but she spent most of her working life in Odessa and in southern Ukraine. She describes herself as nomadic, winding up in Odessa by chance and staying by choice, but her work is really enriched by Ukrainian locations and talent and dialects. I think when we're talking about her first two films, it makes sense to call her a Soviet director because it's Soviet space that she's filming and, and Soviet institutions that she's engaging with at every stage of filmmaking. Throughout her life, she really chafed at labels, but she does stay in Odessa. And even during the Russian military interventions and seizures from 2014 onward, she stays, she dies in 2018. She's a vocal critic of Putin and believed that his regime would eventually collapse. So let's hope she's right. Yeah. Speaking of labels, Jana, earlier on, you mentioned that or you implied that she had very mixed feelings about being described as a feminist filmmaker. Could you yeah, unpack that a bit? I think in a way it makes sense to, to sort of reject labels when your work is focusing on the unraveling of something. It would be like labeling quicksand. It's also important to remember that that sort of feminism in the Soviet Union is described as a, a Western bourgeois hysterical thing that doesn't relate to Soviet life because men and women have equal rights on paper. And feminists were considered uh, lesbians, men, they hated men, but they wanted to be like men, they wanted to tear apart families, they hated children. So there's a lot of negative understanding of the term. Meanwhile, a lot of kind of cult countercultural and dissident thinkers like Tatiana Mamonova are embracing feminism. And uh, Mamonova ended up having to go into exile, but she collected feminist writing from the Soviet Union, from all over the Union, um, and would publish it abroad. And these essays of Soviet feminist writing are unbelievable. They're amazing. And you can still find them secondhand on eBay and stuff like that. So Muratova <laughs> apparently she asked Jane Taubman, like, what is, what is feminism? Like when Taubman was like leading her into a, a class where women wanted to talk about feminism in her films. And she, I think she said something like, if I hadn't found my metier in cinema, I might've become a feminist. And I think by that she meant like sort of an activist, an activist feminist. But there have been arguments, there have been arguments since her films kind of officially came out in the 80s about whether her films are feminist or not, and I'd be happy to like go through a couple of them. I don't know if we have time. Some scholars say, no, the brief encounters in The Long Farewell aren't feminist because they show that being an independent, educated woman makes you unhappy. And some argue that brief encounters contrasts this kind of frustrated, masculinized city official with a traditional, traditionally feminine country girl who's the happier of the two. Um, and so they see the film as kind of condemning Valia's lifestyle and her goals. Um, and I, I can't get behind this reading at all because I think both films show how exhausting and crushing it is to have any ambition for change in a totalitarian society. Like, I don't see Muratova condemning any of her protagonists. She, she fought hard to make films with Valia and Genia at their centers. And I also don't see Nadia as like a simple, happy, traditionally feminine character. I think she's strong and dissatisfied and complex herself. Other people argue that 
these films aren't feminist because it's unfeminist to show a woman unravel because her son is leaving and her husband is left, as if a woman's emotional balance is based solely on the presence of men in her life. In other words, they think Muratova is saying, like, education and a career aren't enough. Love and family are a woman's real priorities. For me, I, I think these these films cast a kind of wry, uncomfortable look at the way that love unravels all of us, including Sasha, right? including his resolve to leave. I think you could even read The Long Farewell as like an indictment of the value that society places on sons and husbands in a woman's life. Like, we see the, the electric nerve-shattering effect of losing them. Like, maybe we shouldn't raise women to believe that their most important achievement is marriage and kids, right? Like, especially in an environment where marriages are often ending in separation or abandonment, right? You should, clearly should not be encouraging somebody to put their whole self-worth based on the success of a relationship with another person who is, a, you know, a separate being with their own feelings and their own responses to you. And it's, yeah. That's so, yeah. right? Yeah, that was beautifully put, man. And it's like, it's mad to me. It's mad that this argument is still going on. Like, there are plenty of people who say that Muratova is a feminist and, and they probably just said, like, kind of better versions of what I've said and and lots of other things as well. Um, but, like, just, just, just last year, there was a conference on Muratova's films in Berlin and a researcher, a young researcher, probably getting her doctorate, Veronika Khrushchevskaya, uh, gave this really great presentation in which she did like a close reading of brief encounters through the framework proposed by Laura Mulvey, one of feminist, uh, feminist film criticisms like Godmothers, right? And it was this very classic, very thorough feminist reading according to the canon, you know, and nothing I, I thought would bat an eyelid. It was great, you know. Um, but when she stopped and there was time for questions, a male Russian professor got up right away and very condescendingly criticized her for bringing a Western feminist analysis onto these Soviet films, as if the very notion of, of crossing the two was silly. And then another professor, a woman, also Russian, got up and asked her, like, why she had even bothered with feminism when there was sexual equality in the Soviet Union. Like, why would feminism even be relevant to Soviet work? And then a third professor spoke up and like totally defended the presenter and criticized the first two for their backward attitude, though she put it more eloquently than that. But I think like, yo, know, like this really speaks to how resistant to feminist criticism so many scholars still are. And I think it speaks to this iron curtain that exists in scholarship as if Soviet films can only be unpacked by sanctioned kind of ex-Soviet thinking. If you're from the West, you shouldn't even bother. And I also think there's a resistance to approaching Soviet cinema from the West as well, like as if all films produced in a Soviet space are somehow like unintelligible or would require 12 years of research to even look at, right? And and this attitude is so unfortunate because it really, it's nationalistic, first of all. And it also, it freezes these films in time and space and it prevents kind of evolutions in film theory from breathing new life into these films as they do with other films, right? But and so that's why I'm I'm so glad that you guys make the work that you do and that you're willing to go here, Mike, and that you you have your podcast alley too because it really keeps these films alive and keeps them interesting. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. He's a man's man. He's a ladies' man. He's a family man. He's a sailor man. Bye. 
Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall in the eye-popping entertainment of the year, Popeye, rated PG. That's right. We'll be back next week with a definite change of pace. We are talking about Robert Altman's film, Popeye. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Gianna and Alistair. So, Gianna... We've been talking all month, but for the folks at home, the ones in the cheap seats, what are you working on lately? I love the cheap seats. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm at a real turning point. I'm going back to school in September. I'll be looking for work soon. Um, and right now I'm just deciding which of my many film research projects to start on next. <laughs> and Allie, how about yourself? So besides my show, Rus Files Unite, where I talk about Russian and Soviet films, I've also done a whole bunch of different guest appearances including the various iterations of Spencer Seams and Joel Torres's uh, shows. Most recently, uh, Shoot the Piano Player, which is looking at French New Wave films. So I was on an episode. They kind of shoehorned Monsieur Hulot's holiday into the sort of New Wave uh, theme of, of their show so that I could be on and talk about that, which was an absolute blast. So I would encourage people to seek that one out very cool well thank you guys so much for being on this whole month of talking about soviet cinema this has been a real pleasure oh thank you so much mike and thanks to everybody for listening thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world из всех сухожилий Но сегодня Опять как вчера Обложили меня Обложили Гонят весело На номера И заели Хлопочут двустволки Там охотники Прячутся в тень На снегу Кувыркаются волки Превратившись В живую мишень Идет охота на волков Идет охота На серых хищников Матерых и щенков Кричат загонщики И лают псы дорвоты Кровь на снегу и пятна Красные флажков не на равных играют с волками егеря, но не трогнет рука, оградив нам свободу флажками, бьют уверенно наверняка. Волк не может нарушить традиции, видно в детстве слепые щенки. Мы волчата сосали волчицу, и всосали нельзя за флажки. И вот охота на волков идет охота на серых хищников, матерых и щенков. Кричат загонщики и лают псы торвоты, кровь на снегу и пятна красные флажков. Наши ноги и челюсти быстры, почему же ваш дай ответ? Мы затравлено мчимся на выстрел И не пробуем через запрет Волк не может, не должен иначе Вот кончается время мое Тот, которому я предназначен Улыбнулся и поднял ружья Идет охота на волков, идет охота 
نشر خیش یکاف مطال خیش شنکاف کریچات سگونشیکی دلایل سیدار فوتی کروشنیگو ی پیاد نکراسنیه فلاشکو یایز پاینابینی اویشل سفلاشکی شاشت جیزنی سیلنی تولک زادی یارادس نسلیشل ادیفلونیه کریکی людей روزی سیل Всех сухожилий, но сегодня не так, как вчера. Обложили меня, обложили, но остались ни с чем егеря. И вот охота на волков, идет охота на серых хищников, матерых ищенков. Кричат загонщики, делают псы торвоты, кровь на снегу и пятна красные флажков.